Hello and welcome. My name is Shanna Whitaker with Saltbox Church, and we are so excited you found us and are carving out some time for King Jesus. So I invite you to put your phones down, your to-do list away, and open your hearts to receive the Word of God. Good morning. I've got all these... Um sort of housekeeping things today. So we're heading towards Acts 17. Um, If you've not been with us before, we are taking an exegetical look at the book of Acts. We're going to cover 1 through 15, verse 1 through 15 today in Acts chapter 17. So open up your phone or your Bible or whatever you are scrolling on. I'm in the NIV today. Um, Two things, however, before we get there. Um, Thing number one, we are launching small groups in February. Um, You may look at me and go, Michael, I've been in a small group and it was a really bad experience. Or you may go, Michael, I've been in a small group, and it was amazing, and I can't wait to get in another one. Either way, I would say take a risk, get out, perhaps become a leader, um, perhaps become a host home and just open your home up, perhaps just get in one. But Pastor Daniel or the welcome table on your way out is who you want to see related to that. Those launch in mid-February. Second thing, I have um, historically, over the last nine or ten years, done a fast in January. Um, And we, as a staff team, we felt like that this particular year, we felt called to fast for Lent. Does anyone know what Lent is? A few of you? That's like probably not even a usual word in like non-denominational churches. But Lent begins on Ash Wednesday, which is February 14th this year. And it ends on Holy Saturday, right before Easter, which is March 30th, I think. Um, It's about a six-week run. And typically for Lent, what you do is you give some things up. Um, and you create a void that can be filled by the person of Jesus through his Holy Spirit. That make sense? So what we would, I would like to invite you to do as a church, and you've got to discern for yourself, you've got to chew the meat and spit the bones, you've got to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit here, but I'd love to invite you um, as we look forward to Lent, so it's about a month away from now, um, but as we look forward to Lent, to begin to pray about um, giving up a food item, fasting. So couple quick ways you can do that. Um, you could give up sweet sugar drinks like Coke and, you know, sweet tea and whatever your stuff is, right? We had somebody last year who gave up coffee. Um, you could do a Daniel fast, eat only vegetables. Um, you could do a full liquid fast. Uh, you could just give up sugar and desserts. You could give up alcohol if you love a glass of wine or a beer. You, there, there's a number of things you could do, but I would call you as a church, I'll call us as a church to begin to pray about giving something up for this six-week period. It's actually like 46 days, but we typically in Lent, you take Sundays off. So you'd enjoy whatever you're fasting on Sunday. And we come together and we celebrate, right? That's what church is, if you didn't know. It's a celebration of Jesus and what he's done. So, and then the second thing I would call you to pray about doing is giving up something practically, like perhaps your Instagram account for 40 days, or perhaps your news feed, or whatever it is that takes a lot of your time and energy. And the whole idea of fasting is that you're giving something up, you're surrendering something to the Lordship of Christ that creates a void in your heart and life that can be filled by the person of Jesus. Does that make sense? You're not giving something up to earn his pleasure or to make him happy with you. No, no, no. All that was done on Calvary. All that was done when Jesus died and resurrected. You are merely creating an opening in your space so that he can move in your life more powerfully and more fully. Amen? Okay. So those are my two things this morning. Um, I am now headed to, let's make sure I did all that. I did. Oh, other thing we're doing. 
Uh, I am, and some of our staff may be here. This is just like a Michael thing. Um, while during that Lent journey, so beginning on basically Valentine's Day, it's like sundown Valentine's Day is when it would begin, but I'm going to show up at Longleaf Park. I don't have my bearings. I think it's that way. Um, at Longleaf Park that used to be Humacray Park from 6.30 to 7.30 every morning. It is going to be very um, not impressive, and I am just going to do a prayer walk. I'm just going to walk. I'm going to pray for our church. I'm going to pray for my family. I'm going to pray for our church family. I'm going to pray for the city of Wilmington. I'm going to pray for churches across um, North Carolina, the eastern seaboard, the U.S., and the larger body of Christ around the world. And if you want to join me, you're invited. It's nothing special. There's not going to be any microphones or any loud wowser stuff. I'm just going to show up in my little hoodie sweatshirt, and I'm a bald man, so if it's cold, I'll have a hat on, and I'm just going to walk. You're invited. Cool? All right, let's dig in. Um, I am in Acts 17, and I am going to attempt to, we're looking at Thessalonica, that's a city, um, and then we're going to look at Berea, and the name of this is Be Berean, and I'm going to attempt to weave some of my own story um, into this message today, if I can do so delicately, um, but this is very powerfully, and some of this is even, if I could go back and talk to my 18, 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old self, some things that I would have told myself. Okay, let's start reading in Acts 17, verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. How about that for a mouthful? Now, this is one of those moments where this is like the economy of the written word, because if I trace that on a map for you, that's a hundred-mile journey. A hundred miles. So they, they're on this journey, and Paul is going from city to city. He is preaching Jesus. People are coming to Christ. This is the birth of the New Testament church. The Lord Jesus has appeared to Paul in Acts chapter 8 um, and 9. Paul's life has been transformed. We've been on this journey where Paul took probably almost 13 years to be prepared. He was ready mentally, but he wasn't ready spiritually and character-wise. God prepared him, and now all of a sudden the church in Antioch has sent him, kind of his sending church, and he and Dr. Luke and Timothy and a couple of other guys, Silas, are rolling through. They're preaching Jesus city to city, um, and they're leading people not only to Christ, but now they're establishing pastors, and they're establishing elders, and they're launching churches in every city they go to. You tracking with me? Okay. Verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. Now, what's a synagogue? A synagogue is like the, the Jewish church of the day, okay? So just like we have a, a big church building, a synagogue is where all the Jewish people met. And Paul viewed his call as first to Jews and then to Gentiles. So if you're not a Jew, you're a... So I'm a good old Gentile, all right? You probably are too. Some of you might have some, some Jewish in your background or, or whatever. But for, for Paul would always start in the Jewish synagogue because the Jews were God's chosen people. So in order to honor that, he would start preaching there in the synagogue. So Paul went into the synagogue on three Sabbath days. So how long was Paul there? Three weeks. Exactly right. Paul was there three weeks. So Paul went into the synagogue on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them. He, ex 
uh, with them from the scriptures. He explained to them. He proved to them that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Um, that this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So let me, let me read that again because I was a little all over the place. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three um, consecutive Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a few prominent women. So what's happening? Paul and Silas roll in. He's preaching in the synagogue. He's probably also spilling out into the streets when he, because you have Greeks coming to Christ. So you have a number of prominent Jews who've now come to Christ. You have a number of Greeks who have come to Christ. And now you have a number of prominent women who have all come to Christ. So in many ways, you have a city that is experiencing biblically what we would call renewal or revival. So the city's going about its way. And then suddenly the kingdom of God breaks into the city by way of the apostle Paul and his faithfulness and his team, he preaches, and all of a sudden the radical nature of the gospel is taking hold and is taking root, and people are turning to Christ Jesus. That's what I'm going to be praying for, by the way, on my prayer walk. Yeah? Come on. Okay. Verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a few prominent women. Verse 5, but other Jews were jealous So they rounded up some bad characters. (laughs) So we got jealous Jews and bad characters from the marketplace, and they formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. Okay, so, I mean, like, picture it. You got Paul. I mean, just think of him on this stage at this moment. He's preaching. People are coming to Christ. Lives are being transformed. He's debating. He's sharing. He's explaining. He's proving. He's demonstrating. He's taking them through the Old Testament because they don't have the New Testament yet, right? And he is, uh, people are coming to Christ Jesus. Their hearts are being awakened and transformed. And suddenly they have a mob that breaks through the back of the doors or here, and they begin to drag people out and carry them off, Okay? That's what's happening. They rushed to Jason's house. We don't know much about this guy, but he's probably wealthy. He's probably become the epicenter of the church there in Thessalonica. And I didn't have, I'm not going to have time to open it today, but I'd encourage you, if you want to study this deeper, to read 1 Thessalonians, which is a letter to the church in... Thessalonica, that's exactly right, and, and especially chapter 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2, and 3, because it all talks about this little thing that happens right here. So they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out into the crowd, but they did not find them, so they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world. I mean, how about that? Drug them out. I have yet to be drug out on behalf of the gospel. Maybe one day I'll have that privilege. But these men have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. And they're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made, uh, then they made Jason and the others post bond in order to let them go. Let's read verse 10, and then I'll pause. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas on their way to Berea. Okay, so 
let's just pause here a second and just sort of try to understand. So you have all, they're preaching, people are coming to Christ, they get people break into the meeting, it spills out onto the streets, there's all sorts of turmoil. Somehow Paul and Silas slip out, so they get this guy Jason, who's become the head of the local church, and they drag him off, and they actually throw him um, into jail, and they make him post bond, and he's basically bond in this case is meaning he is guaranteeing with his money and his wealth and his house and everything else, he is guaranteeing that Paul and Silas aren't going to cause trouble anymore. He put it all on the line. And then the believers trying to protect who? Paul and Silas. Send them where? I mean, in the cover of darkness, they sneak them out, smuggle them out of the city, and send them 50 miles away to this little, um, this little place called Berea. Okay, so let's pause here uh, for just a second, and, and let's see if we can open a few things up. And then I titled this Be Berean, um, because Paul is about to con uh, really commend the Berean church. But I want to unpack this for a few minutes before we get there. Okay, um, first of all, uh, if you recollect, in fact, if you flipped back in Acts to Acts 8, verse 1. I'm going to flip there, because I think it's worth it. If you're in a Bible, you're going left. Acts 8, verse 1. Uh, let's go ahead and start Acts 7, verse 60. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold us against them. This is a guy named Stephen. He is the first martyr. When he had said this, he fell asleep, which is Bible talk for died. That's right. His head has been pummeled with rocks until he was killed. And Saul, now called Paul, approved of their killing of him. So what the text literally says is they had laid all their coats at the feet of this guy named Saul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and, and he was going around creating trouble for the church. And you could go back through and listen to some of our old sermons. But as we went through this book of Acts, Saul was going around dragging men and women out, throwing them into prison, and killing a number of them. We don't know how many he killed, but we know that he was an enemy of the church of Christ Jesus, right? Now, a lot of times when you and I read um, the Bible, we tend to read it in such a way where we read ourselves into the text, which I'm a fan of. I think we're supposed to. Read yourself into the text. Let the Holy Spirit sift your heart. But we tend to read ourselves into the text as the protagonist or the hero, right? But I want to open something for you about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul has been a troublemaker. He has created chaos. He's killed people for the sake of Jesus. He has drugged them out of church meetings and thrown them into prison. And my bet is when he is in the middle of this turmoil and he is watching this trouble happen and he is um, this huge mob and people are getting hurt and no doubt trampled and we don't know all that happened in this huge mob and turmoil. But I imagine that Paul is sitting there in the middle of this and he is looking with kindness and compassion on the people who are stirring up trouble because he was a troublemaker. So, you know, a lot of times we look at this and, you know, we, we, I mean, like if you fully vest your mind and your heart into this moment, what made the Apostle Paul so powerful and so compassionate and so loving and so full of Jesus is that he was the people who are often tormenting and torturing and persecuting him. He was them. And so what's amazing is God has delivered him from that place, um, and now he spends his lifetime suffering and will ultimately be killed for the gospel of King Jesus. Okay, a little pivot into my story. You ready? When I was a student at UNCW, I was part, some of you know this, some of you don't. 
I was part of a um, really reputable Christian group, and by way of that Christian group, some staff members came, um, and a cult formed. C-U-L-T, cult, okay? And um, that's not a cult. Someone said to me, are you saying a cult, Michael? Like O-C-C-U-L? No, no, no. A cult is like voodoo or black magic or, you know, some weird sacrifice. No, no, no. I'm not talking about a cult. This is cult. Now, what makes a cult so dangerous is a cult can be 90% true or 80% true or 50% true, but it's got a lot of truth in it. So undiscerning, well-meaning Christians who have lots of right desire to follow after the lordship of Christ Jesus can inadvertently get sucked into these things because they seem true. Does that make sense? This happens all the time. Now, the reason I'm even sharing this with you is because in my story, this group that I became a part of, and even at some level was um, at the the core of, um, under the, the leadership of it and participating in it, we caused more damage. And I say we here because I'm taking responsibility. We caused more damage to marriages, families, churches, parachurch ministries, ministries on campus than anybody I have ever seen or known. So when I read this, I just, I'm just disclosing now, when I read this, I'm not simply reading it, looking at Paul and these, these bad Jews who were jealous, you know, and then the mob of bad characters that they sort of um, round up and they're going to drag them out and throw them in jail. But I can also read this from the vantage point of, I have been part of the people that stir up dissension and break apart what is good and what God is actually doing. And I have been on the other side, um, participating in things that I go, oh Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you redeem me? And would you rescue the people that were um, part of this thing that I was involved in. Does it make sense? And I think it's really powerful for us as believers when you can both read yourself into not only the protagonist, but also the antagonist. So let's make this practical for you and I for just a second. If you are forcing your family into religious-type thinking, Pharisaic-type behavior, um, if it's not about grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, but it's about performance and cleaning up the outside, are you pushing them, are you rousing up trouble um, for those closest to you and pushing them into empty and dead religion? Yes. Yes. And I think we as like, Moms and dads and, and husbands and wives and adults and teachers and people that work and influence younger people. Like, we have to begin to recognize that the God that we see and believe and serve and who we see and believe him to be is also the God that we're going to represent to all those around us. Does that make sense? So it becomes like this a serious or even a sobering thought that, who, uh, that, that we as believers um, can either take the form of Paul after his conversion and lead people to Christ, reasoning, explaining, proving, proclaiming, or we can also um, round up and, and push people in a negative place, creating trouble uh, for them. If you go, oh, Michael, I've done some of that. I've got good news for you. This is the God of glory who wants to forgive you and redeem and restore. And he continues to do that in my life. And I would welcome you to know this God that loves you, will forgive you, will restore and redeem and walk with you in a healing journey. Amen? Okay. Let me keep going here. uh, I'm in verse 10. 
As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. They didn't want them to be what? Possibly killed, certainly imprisoned. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Verse 11. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. That's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? Let me read it again. <clears throat> they received the message with great eagerness and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Now, is Paul requiring blind obedience to his gospel? Not only is he not requiring it, he's actually um, advocating for the people who go home and what do they do? Examine the scriptures. And if there's something that I would actually look across the American church at this moment and I would say to us is we are at risk because we are cultivating a group of people who don't know how to examine the scriptures and think for themselves and evaluate. And we have in some ways encouraged people to when someone stands on a stage or someone writes a book or someone has a podcast that everything they say is true. And I want to begin to stir that pot a little bit. And I think there's some things that we can um, look at. What does it mean to be Berean? Why is Paul advocating for the Berean Jews? Why is he commending them? Um, so I want, to, I want to give you five questions that I think we ought to ask if we're going to be Berean, if we're going to be like the Berean Jews. And then I think there's also four things that we must become if we're going to be Berean. And in some ways, I would love to go back to 18, 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old Michael and say, Hello, wake up. And I want to um, equip us, if you will, um, with some very practical tools in the way that the Apostle Paul equipped these Berean Jews. Okay? Let's keep reading, and then I'll pause, and, and we'll go back. Verse 11, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Did they have blind faith? No. Did they just take everything as gospel truth? Absolutely not. Many of them believed, which also means some of them did not. That's right. And, all, and did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Verse 13. But when the Jews in Thessalonica, what kind of Jews were they? Jealous Jews, that's right. Back all the way up to verse 5, the Jews who were jealous. So the Jews in Thessalonica, 50 miles away, they hear, and I don't know how long it takes for people to hear, there's now this like renewal or revival thing happening um, down over in Berea, or up over in Berea, rather. Um, and so these guys get on horseback or donkeys, or they set off walking, and they show up. Okay. So they learned, uh, the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, and some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. And again, Paul sees people doing what he spent years doing. The believers, verse 14, immediately sent Paul to the coast. They sent Paul away, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. And those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and left with the instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Next week, we're going to deal with Athens and idolatry. It's really some fascinating things. We'll deal with that next Sunday. But for this Sunday, the questions that I think God would have us as people ask if we're going to be like the Berean Jews, if we're going to be Berean, here they are. Number one, 
Does it align with the word of God? Like there is never a time where you as a person, you might be a brand new believer, you might be a doubter here today or an atheist or a non-believer and I'd welcome you to this journey, but there should never be a time where you listen to someone speak that you don't think critically and evaluate and go, Lord, is this you? And begin to search the scriptures. Is what he is saying true? There's, there's a couple in our church that I absolutely love because occasionally they'll look at me after a Sunday and they'll go, I'm not sure if I agree with you. And guess what I say? Yes! Go home and examine the scriptures. Because, and I work very, very hard actually to cut a line, even in my preaching, where I'll go, this is gospel truth, this is Michael's opinion, extrapolation, add-on, you know, whatever. There's a, there's a line. But it is very dangerous when we as believers take at face value what is being said without critically thinking and examining them. In other words, we just read in the, in the beginning of chapter 17 that Paul reasoned with them, he explained to them, he, he um, proved to them, and he proclaimed to them. Uh, so that would be the, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus. And if you're in here and you're an atheist or a doubter, I would say dig in and begin to look at the Gospels because you have over 500 people that witnessed the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of King Jesus. And they took the time to write about it here. And not only did they take the time to write about it, many of them were killed for their faith. Now, I don't know about you, but if I make up some yarn, some big old lie under the power of death, what am I going to do? I'm going to recant that thing. But you've got 500 people historically that watched the Lord Jesus be crucified, saw him resurrected, encountered his physical body in that resurrection, and then watched him ascend into heaven. And then they documented it. So when you begin to look at the evidence, it is overwhelming that we are not taking this Jesus with blind faith. Rather, we are examining the scriptures constantly going, is he God? Number one. Does it align with the word of God? Anything you read, anything you hear somebody preach. Number two, are they, whoever they is, whoever they are, um, are they teaching extra biblical truth as if it was biblical truth? You follow me? Question number two, if you're going to be brilliant, you're going to ask, are they teaching extra biblical truth as if it was Bible truth? I'm at this point in my journey where I'll hear people do this and I'm just about ready to stand up and walk out. Don't teach me gospel Bible truth. Act like it's gospel Bible truth when it's extra biblical. It doesn't mean it's necessarily against it, but people often tack their own ideas or agendas around the Bible, preach it as if it's Bible truth, and if you're not discerning, you go, okay. So think with me right now. There is a deconstruction movement in the American church, okay? And some people go, oh, that's a really bad thing. I want us to talk about that because I'm going to bring things back to this in just a minute. But there is a deconstruction that is happening, and I would basically propose to you that the reason it's happening is because people weren't Berean in the first place. Be Berean. Because if you build your life on the rock, on the foundation of Jesus, on his word, on the person of Christ, it's not that it'll be perfect. Your understanding is limited. Paul even said, I see through the glass dimly. But it's that you will be built on him, not on a human, not on an agenda, not on an ideology, um, not on an idea or an extrapolation, but rather it's on him. Churches can come, churches can go, pastors can rise, pastors can fall, big old you know crises and all sorts of things can happen in the church. And you're like, well, it's okay because my life is built on 
the bedrock of Christ, not on some ideology or some person or some agenda or some understanding or framework of the gospel. So question number two, I think we should. that we should all be, oh, there it goes, all should be asking is, are they teaching extra biblical truth as if it was Bible truth? Third or application or extrapolation elevated over the mission of Jesus. Make sense? So is one person's agenda, interpretation, or extrapolation elevated over the mission of Jesus? Because if it is, you've got a warning flag beginning to go off. Is it Jesus or is this a person? Is it Jesus or is it an ideology? Is it Jesus or is it an idea? Is it Jesus or is it a framework? Is it Jesus or is it even a theological understanding? Because subtly we can build our lives on people's ideology or on a charismatic leader or on an idea. And I would say, no, 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 no. The moment you begin to do that, you are setting yourself up because you are building your house on the sand and when the floods come and when the shakings happen and when crises happen in your life, what's going to happen? House is going to go washing down. If you're not a Bible person, that's a Jesus parable. House on the rock. Fourth thing I think you need to ask is, and, and this is a, probably a hard one for some Christians, but I would actually say to you, stop reading and listening to agree and start reading and listening with a discerning heart and mind. Most Christians, we sit and we listen to people. I've been guilty of this. We put on a podcast. We put on a YouTube. We listen to somebody on a stage, and we listen to agree. It's like we check our brain at the door. Did the Bereans check their brain? No. Did Paul ask them to check their brain? No, not only did he not ask them to, and not only did they not check their brain, he commended them for not. So like, this is totally Michael, it's extra biblical, but I imagine them going, wow, Paul, we hear you, we see what you're saying about Isaiah, we see what you're saying about Malachi, we see what you're saying about the old covenant and the Torah, we understand how you're preaching this Jesus, the suffering servant, and how you um, are are sharing this gospel, but we're not sure. So we're going to go home and we're going to examine the scriptures. We're going to see if what you're saying is accurate. And Paul commends them. In other words, Paul is raising up people whose lives are built on the bedrock of Jesus himself and not some person or some agenda or some idea. You hear me? It's really powerful when you begin to get down into this because what God is calling and even what Paul then is calling people to is to know and walk with him with these really discerning hearts and minds. So a lot of times we as Christians, I've done this, but have, we will call, um, we will think it is being judgmental um, if we are discerning. So in other words, people all the time will give me like books. <clears throat> They'll say, will you read this and tell me what you think? And I'll go, okay. And sometimes I have to go back and go, yeah, I don't agree with most of this. I don't care for this. I'm, this part was preached like it was gospel truth and this is definitely their opinion. You know, I... Uh, I Mm, let me be careful here. Um, I had an opportunity uh, to dip into this really beautiful um, house church movement, actually with Kenny. 
And one of the things um, that I asked, we were in this movement, and we were talking and meeting with some elders. It was really powerful. Like, I loved what they were doing. But one of the things that I asked was, hey, is it possible? Like, I hear what you're saying, but you're now created a new framework. So they were sort of anti-big church, and they were pro-house church. And I said, okay, I, you know, God uses the house church. He uses big church. I mean, he did both in, in the book of Acts. They met at the temple. They met from house to house. They met in big um, public place like the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Um, so, so they, they met all over the place. But if you begin to say God can only do church in a big environment or God can only do church in a house, you are limiting the power of God and what he can do. Now, if we are believers and we're in Iran right now where it's illegal to be a Christian, do you think we're going to meet in town hall? No. Where are we going to meet? House to house. It's going to be quiet. We're going to be like down in the basement, huddled up. We're going to be sharing. We're going to be on the internet maybe with each other. But if we're in America or some other place where you can meet, we were just in a public middle school, and you're allowed to meet publicly, is God and can God move in big church? Yes. So don't build an ideology or an idea or generate a conviction that God can only do X, Y, and Z. Does that make sense? Because you automatically paint yourself into a corner and you limit what the Holy Spirit of God may want to do. Fifth question. Number one, does it align with the Word of God? Number two, are they teaching extra-biblical truth as if it was Bible truth? Number three, is one person's agenda, um, interpretation, extrapolation elevated over the mission of King Jesus? Another way you can say that is, do they have a bandwagon approach to Christianity? Let's go to, uh, uh, it's like, no, no, no. Settle it down. Let's be settled, grounded, wise, walking with him. Number four, stop listening to agree and instead start listening and reading with a discerning heart and mind. Number five, is they are a plurality of leaders with strong character and fruit of the spirit at the helm of this thing. Whatever the thing is. You hear me? So Pastor Daniel and I, the other day, this is probably a month ago. I'm bad with time. might have been two months ago. I have no idea. It was back there sometime. <laughs> But Pastor Dale and I were interviewing uh, a candidate for one of the jobs that we're trying to fill. And um, I just, out of my own integrity, I had to say, hey, you need to know that I was in a cult for seven years. Um, there's some, there's, if, if we proceed with this, I'll share more, but you just, blah, 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 you need to know this. And he looks back and he goes, is that why you have so much about leadership on your website? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, you got like trustees and overseers and like staff and you got... I'm like, yeah, that's exactly right. Because this can't be one person's agenda, will, and way, or show. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying, hey, y'all, this is my gospel, and I got it all, and you need to do exactly what I say. No, 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 no. It so transcends Paul. He's saying, go and evaluate your scriptures, because the Holy Spirit of God, who is real, and the resurrected power of King Jesus will come to you. And I assure you that if you begin to open your Bible as a doubter, as an atheist, as an unbeliever, as a Christian who's been hurt by church in the past perhaps and you will begin to open your bible and say lord would you speak to me again would you enliven my heart again that the holy spirit is much bigger than you your pain your hurt your frustration your disappointment your atheism your doubt whatever it is he is so much bigger he is the god of the universe that can come to you and bring revelation that he is real and he is alive if you will but step back and go father god if you're real would you speak to me and then you begin to examine the scriptures and the God, the creator of the universe, Lord Almighty, God of the angel armies, the one who put you, your life together, he will begin to reveal himself. And he doesn't need Michael or somebody that wrote the next great book or the next great podcast because he can reveal it to you. And he will if 
you begin to ask. Somebody say amen. Amen. <laughs> okay, Eugene Peterson, um, one of my favorite pastors, who pastored a little know-nothing church, but he wrote all kinds of books and influenced hugely. Um, he wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And here's one of the quotes from it. You ready? A person must be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way of discipleship. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and, and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get thoroughly fed up with the ways of the world before he or she acquires an appetite for the world of grace. It's really good. Now, I would say to you gently but firmly that the type of coercive sort of almost manipulative thinking that I am referencing, groupthink, um, there's a number of ways that you could talk about it, but this exists in so many places. It exists on the political left and the political right. It exists in many churches. It exists in businesses. It can exist in families. And the thing that I am convinced that God has called you and I into as believers and members of the body of Christ is into great freedom. And then when we share with other people, we're not coercing them into a journey. We're just inviting them and sharing with them the freedom that we have found and inviting them to be Berean, to examine the scriptures, not to see if what we say is true, but to see if he's true. So good. It's so much easier in any organization or even family to demand uniformity than it is to foster free thinking and unity within differences. But the body of Christ is called to unity within differences. In fact, in 1617, the Archbishop of Split wrote this phrase in Latin that I love. He said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Okay, so essentials, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. The, the death, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. Essential or non-essential? Essential. Whether you believe in women in leadership or you don't. What you believe about the rapture, the way you choose to vote, essential or non-essential? Non-essential. Some of you are like, oh, no, Michael, the voting. I'm telling you, don't. Take the party line. Don't check your brain at the door and make sure that King Jesus is elevated above all and don't you dare put something above him. Come on. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, Jesus alone. And that's the only kind of church I'm gonna be involved with or ever lead God willing. Amen? Personally, just back to my own story, the moment I smell coercion, manipulation, groupthink, overly systematized, overly strong church culture. And what's the root word of culture? Culture is good, but be careful because culture can go too far. 
And we must be careful to steward the freedom and never coerce people into our understanding of the gospel or what we think it should look like. So the moment I begin to say, well, you better dress like me and you better act like me and you better look like me, I've gone too far, haven't I? Be careful. I would say to you this morning that if we were Berean all along, we would not need to deconstruct because our initial constructions would have been built on the word of God, the person of Jesus, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. You're not building on a person, an agenda, a bandwagon. So to be Berean, four things I think we have to become. These are big and broad. You're gonna go, what? To be Berean, I believe we have to become a disciple. At some point, you have to choose, am I going to be a disciple of Christ or am I going to be a groupie of another group? Are you going to be a disciple or are you going to be a groupie? If you, if you want to become Berean in the way Paul is commending these Bereans, you've got to become a disciple. I think the second thing you've got to become is a pilgrim. What do I mean by that? You, the moment you give your life to Christ, you're saved and you're born again and you're transformed. But this life is a Jesus journey where you're going to go from glory to glory. And in order to go from glory to glory, you're going to recognize your brokenness, your sinfulness, your ugliness. And I have yet to find a week in my house where I don't have to look at my wife and go, babe, would you please forgive me for falling short of the glory of God? If you've never done that, I would invite you into a more holistic experience of what it means to walk with King Jesus. Number one, become a disciple. Number two, we've got to become a pilgrim. Number three, we've got to become people who abide in deep relationship with the person of Christ, first and foremost. And the fourth thing I believe we have to become is we have to become stewards. In other words, is Saltbox Michael's church? Let's say that real loud. Is Saltbox Michael's church? It's mine to steward for this little season. And guess what? I'm 43, and God willing, I'll live to be 80 or 90 or 100 or who knows when he takes me home. And guess what? He's going to pass it on to somebody else. You hear me? Is your house yours? Is your paycheck yours? Is your spouse yours? Are your kids yours? Like the moment you begin to do this mine, 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 American dream thing, you can lose the lordship of Christ Jesus and you can begin to elevate your kingdom, your will, and your way undiscerningly perhaps over the person of Jesus. It is not yours. You are a steward. And here's the amazing thing is if you can take up your place as a steward, you don't have to control it. You're responsible to lead it, to manage it, to follow the Lord, but he can then bless it and magnify it and make that thing grow. Because guess what? You're not going to take credit for it, whether it succeeds and you may not own the whole mess if it fails. You hear me? There is such freedom because you're now called to steward. Even your finances is a stewardship deal. It is not an ownership deal. The moment you go, I don't own my kids. I don't own my, my family. I don't own my car, my house. I don't own my finances. I am stewarding them responsibly under the Lordship of King Jesus. Everything begins to change. To be Berean, we must become a disciple, we must become a pilgrim, we must become one who abides in Christ Jesus, and we must become a steward. Now, here's where I want to leave us. And Dwayne and Nicole, maybe you'll come back out. I would call you to recognize that in this journey, the Christian life is not a sprint. And not only is it not a sprint, it's a marathon. And not only is it not a marathon, it's like an ultra, ultra, ultra marathon. I talked to a guy in the lobby. I didn't ask him, so I won't embarrass him, but he's running like an ultra marathon this next week. It's like 100 miles or something. I don't know. It's crazy. 
the Jesus journey is an ultra, ultra, ultra marathon. It doesn't happen fast. It is not glamorous. It's not hip. It's not cool. And if you, wanna, if you want something that is rapid and hip and cool, you probably need to go elsewhere because the Jesus journey is not. It is slow. It is arduous. It is difficult. It requires that you get on your knees and practice humility, that you practice his presence, that you ask people's forgiveness, that you recognize your own depravity and sinfulness. But when you begin to do that, you'll experience the life-changing transformation of King Jesus in you and through you and in your marriage and in your family and in your ministries and in your work and every area of life because he is the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. It is so good. Oh, yes! That's all I have to say. They're going to close us in a worship song. I'd love for our ministry team to come up. Kenny, would you join our ministry team? Would you just make yourself available if anybody wants to come and pray with you? If you're here today and you've never given your life to this Jesus, I'd invite you to come down. I'll be right here. I'd love to pray with you or one of our ministry team. We can lead you in that. It's a simple prayer, supernatural transformation, but it's just the first step in like a thousand-mile journey. Let's stand together. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to sift our hearts. If you want to come up for special prayer, please do. And then I'll close this in just a minute. Jesus, you're all this heart is 
Father, it occurs to me that there's probably some people in here who have experienced coercive or even manipulative leadership in the past. And Father, it's possible that a message like this could even trigger old trauma, old emotion, old feelings. And Father, I pray that you would use this to lead them to freedom in Christ. Your yoke is easy. Your burden is light. You have set us free indeed, and we are new in you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to walk from our oldness into our newness in Christ Jesus. Father, we love you and we praise you. Father, set us free and let us know you and walk with you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening today and being part of the Saltbox online community. If we can pray for you in any way, please leave us a comment below or connect with us through saltboxchurch.com. Remember, just Jesus, nothing more, nothing less.